Hello out there to anyone listening. This is Onion Ring Sasquatch ORS at the movies coming at you today. Working on our newest review after a three year plus hiatus. Today we're going to be talking about Battlefield Earth, that amazing piece of cinema from the year 2000, set in the year 3000. This is your host, your boy, G Money Clip, and with me today. Here comes a new challenger! My friend Jason, a.k.a. Thornton Mellon, is going to be joining in on this one. Howdy, everybody. You had not seen this one before. I had not seen this. This was brand new for me. Heard lots about it over the years, but never sat through it. And you gave me an excuse to be tortured with this. Oh, thing. you're welcome. You're Thank thoroughly you for that. welcome. <laughs> so I'm guessing you had never read the book either. No, I had no point of reference other than L. Ron Hubbard wrote a book. They made a movie about it. That's about all I got. That's a good place to start. I actually did read the book twice. I'm sorry. I know. It was once, uh, about the time the movie was going to come out, actually. It was in the spring of 2000 when I was in film school. I read it. It wasn't anything amazing, but that's got to be better than the movie. And then I read it again about 10 years later, and it's like, you know, this really isn't that great a book either. So you, so you read the book before you saw the movie? Or I did, the movie yeah. Was, okay. I think it was about April of 2000 I read the book. It took forever, because the book is 1,050 pages long. Holy crap. The movie only goes through about the first 473 pages of it. Oh, wow. So, yeah, even at the, the point where it ends, there's still half the book left to go. The book came out in 1982, written by L. Ron Hubbard, who had been a science fiction writer before he decided to create his own religion, as, you know, most science fiction <laughs> writers do, except they usually keep them in their books. And L. Ron Hubbard is a name I first heard, probably like you, as a kid of the 80s growing up, because of all the Dianetics, Dianetics. That's right. that you would see on television at the time. Every time you'd be watching G.I. Joe or something, and, like, every time they'd have a commercial break... Dianetics by L. Ron Hubbard. Buy your copy at B. Dalton's, Walden Books, or wherever paperbacks are sold. A fresh look at today's problems. They could have got me because <laughs> I'm just looking at the commercials and going, oh, it's just a book. Looks like a science fiction book. Yeah, yeah it's about a volcano exploding. Didn't know it was a cult thing, but... <laughs> you live and you learn. That's all right. They would have got me at age 12 or whatever. By June of 1983, it was reported to have sold about 150,000 copies. However, this was under what could be termed dubious circumstances. <laughs> um, there were reports at the time emerging of groups of Scientologists that would just go around on bookstores and buy every copy of the book that they could get their hands on. Nice. One individual was reported to have bought 800 copies. So bookstores such as B. Dalton and Walden Books were reporting that they were receiving shipments of the book that already had their price tags put on it. So somebody was getting these books and then returning them to the distributors, and then they were getting shipped back to the bookstores again. Well, the strategy worked for the Beatles. Brian Epstein went out and bought up all the early copies of Love Me Do to give them their first chart hit. Why not? Are you comparing Battlefield Earth to the Beatles? <laughs> I'm, I'm suggesting L. Ron Hubbard took a note from Brian Epstein's book to try to garner some interest and make it look like this book's really cool. we got to check it out. It worked in both cases. Uh, the book <laughs> went to number one on the, on the New York Times nice. bestseller list. Uh, the L.A. Times, the UPI, the AP bestseller list, too. Of course, what they were trying to do was to get a number one bestseller so that they could get a movie deal worked out. Hubbard was interested in doing this as early as the mid-80s. And John Travolta really wanted to be in the movie. He loved the book. He had been a Scientologist since, I don't know, the mid-70s. He was just thrilled with the idea of making a movie about Field Earth. The problem that comes along is that John Travolta is one of those actors whose careers had a lot of peaks and valleys. If it had been a few years earlier, probably they could have gotten a movie made with little problem. The mid-70s, he had been on Welcome TV. Back Cotter, Welcome Back Cotter. Grease. 
Saturday Night Fever, yep. Urban Cowboy, and you know, all kinds of hits in the in the late seventies, early eighties. The problem is, after that point, he had had a few flops in a row. Staying Alive, the sequel to Saturday Night Fever, tanked. Two of a Kind, Perfect, with Jamie Lee Curtis, flat-out bombs. So by 1985 or so, he was in a trough. Um, I think he stayed that way until Pulp Fiction came along. So L. Ron Hubbard originally had the idea of making two movies out of the book because it was so big. They could be budgeted about $15 million each. Problem was, he died in 1986. And without him as the driving force behind it, the movie sort of goes into development hell. Cut to 1994, John Travolta's in Pulp Fiction he becomes a big star again. Face off. General's daughter? He was an above-the-title name on the poster. So then he comes back to the idea of Battlefield Earth. The problem was that he had originally wanted to be the good guy. That was in, you know, 1982 when the book came out. So by the time it gets in the late 90s, he's too old to be that guy. So he decides he's going to be the bad guy instead. The other big problem getting the movie off the ground wasn't John Travolta's star power. It was Scientology. He's a big enough star to get a movie made, but the Scientology thing is a little bit wacky. And the studios were very reluctant to make a movie based on a book by Scientology's founder. Another thing that came along problem-wise is that the movie's budget had then become estimated to be uh, around $100 million. So Fox said no, MGM said no, and then this little company called Franchise Pictures comes along. Now, Franchise Pictures wasn't a movie studio, but they were an investment firm. They specialized in stars' pet projects. So uh. if somebody's got a movie they've been trying to get off the ground for a long time, Franchise Pictures would come along and say, hey, we got your money. You take a pay cut to work on it. We'll provide the financing. So they'd get the movie made, get the star to work for less than their usual rate, and, you know, a lot of these guys would go for it. The guy's name behind Franchise Pictures is Ili Samaha. This guy had started his business. He was uh, like a nightclub owner and in, in the dry cleaning business before he had started sinking money in all these movies. With very few exceptions, their movies were poorly received and did not do well at the box office. I think the only movie they had that was any kind of a hit was The Whole Nine Yards oh, with wow. Bruce Willis. Ballistic X versus Sever, which is, I think, still the worst reviewed movie on Rotten Tomatoes. It had like a 0% with the most number of reviews. <laughs> So the movie gets set up as an independent production through Morgan Creek, and it's going to be distributed by Warner Brothers. The franchise Pictures retained foreign distribution rights. They licensed European distribution rights to a German group called Entertainment AG in exchange for 47% of production costs, and they had set the budget of the movie at $75 million. Keep that number in mind. Part of the trouble is they've got the financing, but they didn't have a studio producing the movie. In a way, it almost became like a, a huge independent film. For directors, John Travolta actually approached Quentin Tarantino to direct the movie. That would have taken a completely different turn, wouldn't it? <laughs> he did say no. <laughs> I don't know how long he was tempted, but he said no. George Lucas recommended this guy named Roger Christian, who had been a set decorator on Star Wars and had been a second unit director on Return of the Jedi and on The Phantom Menace. But he never had any feature film directing no. experience. No. He'd Assisted and been in lower roles, but never actually sat at the helm of the. No, and when you think about it, what would second unit directing be on episode one? Here, film this field that we're going to put all this CGI shit in later. So it's basically setting up a camera and running it for like a couple minutes and say, okay, there's your background, George. Now fill it with cartoon robots. So they go up to Canada to save money, like many film productions have done. And the film had a lot of bad buzz before it even got released. This website called Mean Magazine got a hold of a copy of the script, and they changed the name of the script and the name of the writer. They sent it out to professional screenplay readers. They all sent it back <laughs> saying stuff like, this is ridiculous. No, nobody would be interested in making this movie. This is terrible. Nice. Don't do it. <laughs> 
So the movie comes out May 12th of 2000. It got scathing reviews and bad box office. It has a 2.4 on IMDb and a 3% on Rotten Tomatoes. But is it as bad as its reputation? Let's find out. But the answer is yes. <laughs> We watched two different versions of this movie because they made two different versions of this movie. They had the theatrical cut, which then vanished when the DVD was put out because they decided to go in and make some changes, take a couple little scenes out and put a couple other little scenes back in. And the theatrical version kind of disappeared until last year when they put out the theatrical version on Blu-ray for the first time. Yeah, they took a play from George Lucas's book to go back and say, oh, hey, let's let's tweak this. Let's change some things. And Yeah, they, they color corrected it. Extended scenes and things like that, and it's different now. Except Star Wars fans would kill somebody to get the unaltered theatrical versions of their movies released, and nobody was asking for Battlefield. <laughs> but I think the important thing to know here is that even between the Blu-ray and the DVD or what's streaming on, on Netflix... None of what you get for home viewing now is actually exactly the same as what was released in the theaters. It's altered either by some of the color correction or in the, the altered scenes that are in the movie. So the, nothing at this point is reproducing what was actually in the theater. Yeah, nothing matches that original theatrical experience, which I made it about 45 minutes in before I said, guys, life's too short. And I got up and left. So we've got two different versions of the movie we watched. We've got the cleaned up 2020 Blu-ray. How appropriate is it that this movie's 20th anniversary was in 2020? All the other <laughs> crap that happened that year. The other version, the DVD, my copy was a weird German copy, which I'll call the German Scheiße video. The copy I got was from the, the public library. I reserved it, and interestingly enough, I was at the top of the list. I didn't have any problem getting a, oh, getting nice. a copy. Oh, <laughs> You got lucky. There's probably some Scientologist somewhere in town who's got it stapled up on his wall and prays to it five times a day. <laughs> What's interesting is the German Scheiße video actually starts off with a big, long wall of text. The year is 3000 A.D., Earth, once the home of mankind, has been ruled by cruel aliens from the planet Cyclo for a thousand years. As on countless other planets everywhere in the galaxy, the Cyclos on Earth mine metals and teleport them to their own home planets. Gold is the rarest and most valuable metal of all. The dwindling human population is fighting for its survival. Hidden in hollow zones within irradiated zones, humanity is on the verge of extinction. Would any of that have been useful to know? That makes a world of difference. <laughs> Why didn't they put that in English? Now, there's context that does not otherwise exist in any way, shape, or form watching this movie. Even after you watch it, I don't think you walk away with that kind of an understanding of what the hell's going on. No, because we kick off the movie, and the one thing that pops up, it just says, man is an endangered species. That's it. That's all they tell you. We were complaining about Waterworld. This is even worse. They tell you nothing. And the thing about watching the original, I guess, coloring as shown on the DVD is everything that you see as outdoors seems to have this ugly yellowish kind of tint on it. It's and it's just, really inconsistent, too. It's, yeah. it's like that, but sometimes the color looks completely normal outdoors, but then other times, yeah, it has this, this terrible yellow cast to it. Yeah, and I don't get why they did that, because it looks like somebody pissed on the movie or something, which isn't a bad idea, right. but... That's one thing that I noticed between the two that I thought actually was a, an improvement on what they did with the Blu-ray is the color correction that they did made a huge distinction between what's happening outdoors on Earth in what we would consider our normal atmosphere and then what is happening on the, the inside on the Cyclos out atmosphere and how it's different. That watching the original cut of it with the way the colors are, you don't pick up on that distinction as well. That at least in the color correction they did, that seemed to suddenly make sense. That I'm, Oh, I see, they're going back and forth between these two environments 
none of that is really discernible in the original cut. Yeah, the alien spot seems to have like a blue kind of cast, like a bluish purple sort of thing to it. But yeah, the outsides, they're just ugly looking in the original version. And I don't know why they would have done that. I don't know why they did any of the heavy tinting right. in some of the things that they did. I don't understand what their color choices are. So we start off with our guy, Barry Pepper, returning home from uh, running around looking for medicine for his dad, I guess. His sweetie tells him that dad died, the gods took him in the middle of the night, and then he has a fit before he goes in and talks to the tribal elder and tells him, uh, we can't stay here, we can't get enough food. In the book, the reason they got a problem with where they live is because they're living in radioactive zones because the radiation makes the aliens' breathing gas explode, which comes up later. The aliens can't come get them because they can't go up in these areas, but it's also making everybody die of radiation poisoning, which you don't see at all in the movie. Yeah, none of that. Because there's no there. sickly-looking people. Nobody's got their hair falling out. I mean, it makes you sterile on top of that, so I don't know how they would have had. There were, like, young kids running around. The interesting thing for me at the very start of the movie as we, we get introduced to this character, and like you said about him, him being told that his father's dead, the film editing, particularly early on, is really clunky. You're introduced to this character as he comes riding up on the horse. We have no idea who he is, why he's there, or anything. The gal tells him his, his dad died. He has, you know, the semi-dramatic reaction to it. And then there's this, like, little five-second cut scene where he's burying his father that has no relevance to anything. It's it's one of these things where the whole initial 20 minutes of the movie, the editing is so erratic that there's this little clip here and this little cut here that has no purpose. It doesn't drive anything. There's no character development. It just sort of happens, and you're left wondering what the hell is going on. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. <laughs> he talks to the village elder, who was played by Michael Byrne. You may recognize him as uh, Colonel Vogel from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I and, did not make that connection. Yeah, he played the soldier in Braveheart also, the one who was licking Mel Gibson's wife's face. <laughs> he tries to tell uh, Barry Pepper about the monsters out there, the beasts. Nobody's ever seen one of these things. So, you know what, screw you guys, I'm going anyway. Well, and that's the thing that I didn't pick up on as now, as we cut from there to him leaving, I have no idea where he's going or why. There's this whole warning about these beasts out here, these monsters, and then he's going to go anyway, but where exactly is he supposed to be going? The implication is that he's going somewhere to look for a better place for everybody to live because they can't get enough food where they are. In the book, again, the problem wasn't food. It was radiation poisoning. Everybody was dying of sickness. That was what his dad died of. Okay. Barry Pepper, of course, played Jackson, the sniper, in Saving Private Ryan. Ah, uh, right. He went from working with Spielberg to making this movie. The village elder went from working with Spielberg and Mel Gibson to making this movie. <laughs> are you making Steven Spielberg some kind of gateway? Are you, are, you, are you pointing out a common thread here? As far as I know, I don't think John Travolta's worked with Steven Spielberg, so I don't know. As he leaves the camp and, and heads out on his own here, there's another little spot here in the transition where we see this cut of this guy blowing a, a horn up on the hillside. It's there as you transition in the scenes. And again, it's one of those little cut things. It's like, what's that there for? It's the Ricola dude. Ricola. Yeah! <laughs> Something spooks his horse, which sends him down in a slow motion fall. Anytime there's an action scene in this movie, it has to be in slow motion. Oh my God, the slow-mo. <laughs> I feel like you could take a good solid 20 to 30 minutes of running time off of this film if all of the slow motion shots were done in real time. Yeah, slow motion is used generally where there's something that has to happen and you feel like it's not happening fast enough. I've got to push the button to stop the bomb from going off 
but I've only got two seconds to do it. So it's like slow motion. Someone's reaching out to hit the controller for the bomb. In this case, we're just going to drag these things out longer. It's a horse going out of control and falling. It should be something that's fast to make you feel like you're losing control of it. He lands in a miniature golf course where we get an instant flashback to the cave painting we just saw. Even though it's been a thousand years since anybody's been at this thing, there's a perfectly good golf club laying around that he <laughs> takes a swat at. He's swinging around like Shooter McGavin at the uh, dinosaurs or whatever they're supposed to be in this putt-putt course. He beats the crap out of a brontosaurus. Yeah. it's a... <laughs> <laughs> Now, on one hand, it, it's kind of neat to see the, the overgrown uh, putt-putt course because now you get the juxtaposition between the earth and all the cultural references that we know on a day-to-day -day basis, and this is how far things have gone from the society that we know today. So on one hand, you can kind of see that be kind of cool, but I think the execution's kind of poor. And the other thing you notice, too, is when you're out there, especially in the German Scheiße video, everything is green, ultra green. Like, right. they bump the greens up so high. He's in this golf course, and he runs into two cavemen straight out of Quest for Fire. <laughs> One of them is played by Kim Coates, who was also in Waterworld. So, I can't get away from Waterworld. <laughs> he was the paper guy, the traitor. They're challenging our hero, and then Barry Pepper spits at him like a fucking knacker. You're supposed to be the hero. <laughs> Why are you spitting at people? That's gross. <laughs> fucking caveman, Jesus. And I think that's important to call out here, especially at this point as some of these other guys are being introduced how they've devolved to this primate level of culture and, and how we act. That's an interesting thing that I think comes up later as technology comes back into the picture. Yeah. That, that just humanity has devolved so far that we're pointing spears at each other and grunting and hissing and not even using yeah. language to really communicate. Well, no, they do. They speak really good English. They use a lot of idioms. They use a lot of cliches. Their, their English is well advanced. It's just all of a sudden they're using caveman tools. And these are people that would have started out, you know, in 2000, they had cell phones, Palm Pilots and stuff like that. Yeah, now they're using spears made out of rocks and <laughs> knives made out of shards of glass. Here's a few things we may have noticed. We're maybe 10 minutes or so into the movie at this point, and there's a couple of disturbing trends that have already popped up. One, almost every shot in the movie is at a Dutch angle. That's where the camera is tilted, sometimes as much as 45 degrees. Generally speaking, it's done if something is happening on screen and your main character might be feeling like, whoa, something weird's happening. So you kind of film it at an angle so it puts you in the character's frame of mind. The only problem is here, it gives the audience disorientation because every goddamn shot is at an angle and you're leaning in your seat like you're trying to balance it out and then the camera will shift the other direction in the very next shot so it feels like you're on a boat swinging around and you don't know what the fuck is going on. It worked for Batman in the 1960s. It did. It's like this guy watched Batman and said, we should do that. Actually, the director said that he did the Dutch angle thing because he wanted it to be like a comic book. Nice. I've seen a lot of Marvel movies. I don't think any of them have used Dutch <laughs> angles for, you know, nine-tenths of the goddamn movie. It's ridiculous. It's like something you should use when it has meaning. One reason you do it is when we get introduced to these aliens later, they're supposed to be like nine feet tall. So if you need to keep a human and an alien in the same frame together, you can tilt it because it gives you that little extra bit of height. Well, force perspective. Yeah, and this came out like a year and a half before Lord of the Rings where they were able to use computers to do all that sort of stuff and had the budget to do that. But these guys have no other tricks than to tilt the camera. It's like they rented a tripod, got it up to Canada, and were like, we can't get this one leg to extend. So this damn thing is at an angle. Should we take it back? Nah, that's all right. It'll be fine. Just leave it. 
and everything's just going to be at an angle. And sometimes we'll rotate the tripod so that the short leg is on the other side, and we'll just go shoot the movie that way. Forget about returning it and getting one that actually fucking works. <laughs> the other thing you notice at this point is that they're using Star Wars wipes. Not really. Not really. They got one wipe. <laughs> they From use the center one. of the screen out. It never changes. <laughs> they use the same wipe every goddamn time. I worked on Star Wars. You were the set decorator. But I walked by the editing bay that one time, and I saw they did a wipe, and it was from, from like, the center out. So that's what you do, right, in a science fiction movie. But again, you watch Star Wars or Kurosawa movies, which is where George Lucas got it from in the first place, and they can use wipes for all sorts of different stuff. They've got, like, ten different style of wipes they, they use. They top to bottom, they go diagonally left to right, diagonally right to left... All kinds of swipes and, and wipes. And, and and they use it with motion, too. You'll have a character walking off screen, and the wipe will follow them. Right. You have the wipe move across screen, and a character's walking in at the same time. You have them pulling C-3PO up after the sand people attack them, and they're pulling up with the wipe. Right, right. So it's something that you can use to have some sort of an effect. In this case, they do it just because... Because unless you have two people in the center of the screen that suddenly walk off in opposite directions, there's no motion that can follow that wipe. <laughs> It's like this guy knows that there are techniques that directors use in film, but he doesn't understand why they use them or, or when how they to should even be used. artistic about it, where you can do it in a visually appealing way. It's like he had a teenage kid there at the editing bay going, man, look at this wipe thing. That's great. <laughs> I'm going to do it again. There are other buttons on the computer there, Chucky. I mean, you can do something else. So anyway, back to the movie. <laughs> These cavemen are out hunting for stuff. Barry Pepper decides that he'll share his uh, his rabbit he caught with them if they show him where these gods are in this city that they're talking about. So they take him into the remains of a city, and these cavemen think that the gods are statues. They call buildings caves. It's as if they transported cavemen to this time. It's like no knowledge of the past has been given They've at completely all. forgotten any, any They don't historic... know anything about cars. They don't know anything about buildings. They yeah. don't know anything about anything. Which is weird. I don't think that's how it would work. Even if it's been a long time, they would still have some kind of knowledge or stories or something of, of these things. And they seem to have forgotten that McDonald's was ever a thing because he starts to describe the Golden Arches and talk about how food would magically appear. Well, it almost took you a thousand years to get your drink today. So, <laughs> so they go into a mall and hide out. As they come walking in, Barry Pepper goes walking straight into a glass wall because yeah. we don't have windows in the future. They've been calling Barry Pepper greener, and he explains it's because the grass is always greener on the other side. Another one also says that a good woman is hard to find. So I'm just wondering if they were dusting off the book of cliches. So I guess those have survived the test of time. We'll head them off at the pass! Head them off at the pass? I hate that cliché. So then they're hiding out in this mall. Then aliens show up to capture them. And we get another slow motion chase where they're going through the mall and everything is in this weird, ugly green light. The fat one decides it would be a great idea to jump off the top floor of the mall <laughs> because it's quicker than running down the escalator like Barry Pepper does. So he falls and breaks his leg. I don't know what he thought was going to happen. Once the aliens show up, this is one of those points where the color scheme on the screen completely changes for no apparent reason. As I watched it again, I think maybe it was one of those things that I didn't appreciate so much because at first they're sitting around the campfire and maybe it's just not apparent. But as they move away from the campfire and all the action's taking place, everything gets cast in this horrible green mm -hmm. tint. We got a green light, man. We're going to use it. <laughs> again, more slow motion. The special effects they're using look cheap. 
small little laser beams and CGI ripples for shock waves. Barry Pepper's trying to get away. He calls Seabiscuit, who comes running in, and then he arrives in slow motion and gets instantly shot. And so eventually, when Barry Pepper does get shot, he goes crashing through a whole bunch of those glass display cases. Right. The first thing I thought of is, oh, that's Blade Runner. It's the scene where Joanna Cassidy gets shot in the back by Harrison Ford, and she goes crashing through all the glass things in in that scene. Only it's not as meaningful or (laughs) well-earned. We're too early in the movie for this stuff. The difference between an homage and a ripoff. It's a thin line sometimes. Yeah, to me, that's a (laughs) ripoff. There's even like a Christmas tree on display. And in Blade Runner, when she goes crashing through the glass where she ends up crashing down, there's like all kinds of fake snow and everything in the store display. We still don't have any idea who these characters are. And now as this chase scene takes place and these these other guys show up, there's still no explanation to give you any idea who they are, what the heck's going on, or why they've suddenly shown up in the middle of this mall to start fighting these guys or, or trying to capture them or whatever. Maybe this would have been a good time for that flashback to the cave painting of the monsters instead of <laughs> earlier when there was nothing else going on. Barry Pepper gets put in a cage and he gets flown out with other people they've captured and taken to a city under glass. And this is where we get some like nice old school matte paintings, shots of them going into the city. And I'm like, okay, that's actually kind of cool. I like seeing old matte paintings and stuff like that where everything isn't 100% CGI. I'll give the movie a point for that. Right. And this is also the point where now we start to see that juxtaposition with the with the color scheme, so that now as they come into here, everything's a cast in this icy cold blue instead of the yellow. That's one plus that I'd give them that that is that starts to set up the difference between this alien environment and what we've seen otherwise for the for the humans on Earth. They go through an airlock, which switches over to the alien air, and then everything becomes like in this bluish cast, like you're talking about. The aliens give them masks so that they can breathe. And there's going to be this in the movie where they do a lot of switching. When they're outside, the aliens have to wear the masks. And when they're inside, then the people have to wear them. And it turns out that, once again, we're in Denver. In Waterworld, when Kevin Costner went under the sea and showed him a city, it was Denver. So we're back in Denver. Again. Fantastic. Now it's under a glass cage and ruled by aliens wearing stilts. As soon as the cage opens, Barry Pepper decides they're going to make a break for it, and they go running off. So the aliens set their weapons to stun and shoot one of them. Barry Pepper grabs the guy's gun and for some reason knows to switch it back to kill before he shoots the guy, despite never having seen a gun before, and the guy had to switch it to stun in the first place. So how did Barry Pepper know that switching the gun was going to do anything? I think I missed that, actually. I think I I missed that distinction that they... He definitely does, like, a. there's, like, a lock... And he switches before he shoots the guy and stuns him. There's a two-barreled gun, and you can see that the stun shots come from one side, and the kill shots come from the other. Ah, okay. How he knew to switch it? Don't know. Because the guy says something like, uh, hey, you can't use them if they're dead. So he switches it to stun. Right, okay. at this point, he doesn't understand their language, so he doesn't know what the hell's going on. Sure. But he knew how to take and switch it before he shot the guy and killed him. And apparently the aliens feel no pain because he gets shot in the chest and he just kind of goes, huh, and falls over and dies. (laughs) So he runs off and and runs into John Travolta who picks him up by the neck and drags him back out. Barry Pepper in this movie gets picked up so much he should have a handle. (laughs) This guy gets thrown around and dragged all over the place the entire movie. He takes him to the guy and says, "Um, what's he doing running loose? And he says, well, he shot the guy. And he's like, he's in disbelief that this human creature knows how to use a gun. What? Oh, wait, this human shot this guy? You're putting me on. Here, show me. 
gives him the gun again and has Impossible. him shoot another guy. And then he's like, well, I'll be damned. And then he laughs maniacally, which he does several times throughout the movie. evil guys do that's what bad evil guys do <laughs> see that's the thing when you when you have a villain it's easy to have the mustache twirling psycho who laughs all the time and for some characters that works like the joker but generally speaking the best bad guys are the ones that don't act completely batshit crazy and tip their hand that they're the bad guys nurse ratchet from cuckoo's nest mm -hmm. she's the bad guy but she believes she's doing the right thing she doesn't go running around laughing at people saying, ha, 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 I'm going to cut your meds or whatever. She's just convinced that what she's doing is right, even though she's really doing a lot of harm. That's what makes her a good bad guy. Michael Douglas in Falling Down. I'm the bad guy? How'd that happen? Yeah. He doesn't even know he's the bad guy. Exactly. We talk about how ridiculous the aliens look. <laughs> the aliens are all wearing stilts because they're all supposed to be somewhere between eight and nine feet tall. They have huge heads, insane dreadlocks. Is that cultural appropriation? And their boots look like something out of a fucking Kiss concert. They're just ridiculously huge. There's a couple shots in the movie where you see their feet and you're like, oh my god, it's like fucking Peggy Hill. There's a, an astonishing lack of consistency in the character design, too. The features and the types of things that you see on one are completely absent on another. It's like the no-name guys have more facial appliances and makeup on them yeah. to make them less recognizable, but there's John Travolta, and it's like, oh yeah, we can recognize him. Exactly. It's like they decided to take some of the lesser knowns, and here, you sit in the uh, makeup chair for six hours while we put all this crap on you. John Travolta, now, nah, 45 minutes, you're good. It's like taking the old-school Klingons from the original series of Star Trek and mixing them together with the film Klingons, where they, they've completely altered the makeup and put them together on screen at the same time. <laughs> And that's kind of the thing where your your villains, especially in science fiction and you know movies in general, it's a visual cue. The bad guys always look ugly, or they always have some kind of a deformity. Whether they're wearing an eye patch or they have steel teeth, you know they have forehead ridges like the Klingons. There's mm -hmm. always like some kind of visual tell. But holy shit, are these guys butt ugly? <laughs> they're just laying it on really thick. We get it. They're the bad guys. We go to a scene in the bar. This is in the theatrical version where Travolta blackmails the bartender because John Travolta thinks he's going to transfer off the planet. The bartender was giving him information so that he wouldn't let some sort of a ugly secret about this guy's past go out and wreck his son's chance of getting into the academy. He's like, yeah, that was before, but now I'm going to do it. And then he just laughs like a jackass. <laughs> and there's no subtlety or any kind of nuance in the performance. John Travolta is just a big ham throughout the entire movie. They set him up to 11. It's almost like he worked with Nicolas Cage on Face Off. And he's like, shit, I can do that. I mean, I guess he's having fun, but it's bad. And he can be a good actor. Not in this. <laughs> I don't get it. That is the thing that they start to establish with him. They make no mistake about it. Is that his character is a really bad dude. That he has no ethics. He's constantly looking out for himself and has no qualms about blackmailing. But he's got the one speed about it. That yeah. where it's constantly over the top. 
So we get a big wig who teleports in from the home planet, and it's funny because he complains about the blue sky and all the green on Earth. Meanwhile, it's a yellowish haze that they've put on the camera at this point. It's like, what blue sky? <laughs> what green is he talking about? Everything's ugly looking. For some reason, they look at a satellite photo they took of a dog riding in the back of a car and say, oh, well, the dog is the superior race because it's got the man-animal chauffeuring it around. And okay, that's that's a funny joke because dogs do that. But that picture was obviously taken before they conquered the planet. I, I couldn't even tell what the picture was. What struck me is this picture is like a thousand years old. <laughs> they haven't looked at it before now. You're just now showing it to this guy. I don't understand how the aliens have learned nothing about humans. They've been running the planet for a thousand years. They've got humans as slaves. I, I don't like that word. Yes word, yes word. Sorry, the prisoners with jobs. Okay, that's better, that's better. They don't know anything. They don't know what they eat. They don't know what they can do, what they can't do. These aliens are stupid. That's as nice as I can put it. They start talking about the home office, corporations, and mining, and when they're doing all that, they remind me of the Ferengi from right. Star Trek, especially the Deep Space Nine Ferengi, where they're talking about, you know, the rules of acquisition, talking about money and, and stuff all the time, and it's like, okay... I don't remember if they were that much like this in the book. Maybe they were, but maybe they ripped off Star Trek. <laughs> and this is the scene where the big guy from Home Planet is telling John Travolta that he's going to stay on Earth for another 50 cycles, and then we start getting weird, ugly close-up shots and echoing voices, and it's like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> he says, you're going to stay here for another 50 cycles, but doesn't explain how long that is in Earth years. In terms the audience could understand, we're getting nothing. <laughs> It turns out that they're taking revenge on Don Travolta for fooling around with a senator's daughter, and they finally mention his name, Turl. 25 minutes or so into the movie, we finally hear what his name is. And then the big guy from the planet, he laughs at him the same way John Travolta's laughing. <laughs> all these aliens try to screw each other over and laugh maniacally about it the whole time. They're all the same, over-the-top, clownish buffoons. So they go back to the home planet. The planet is a severe, deep purple color because nothing in the movie can look normal. And then on the Blu-ray, they corrected it so that it's like just a regular kind of light blue. And looks the same as what we've seen now inside the, the dome that we're under. As they leave and head back, this is another one of those points that, from an, a film editing perspective, you get this like 10 to 20 second clip of them coming back in, that they're on the home planet, then you're back on Earth. There's absolutely zero point of showing them returning to Cyclo at this point. They show up, and we see this picture of the home planet, and then we're gone again. And I have no idea why it's there. Because this is a science fiction movie, and we got to show an alien planet. And what's weird is the alien planet looks very deserted. You've seen Star Wars, so in the prequels, when they're on Coruscant, you got all this traffic zipping around on all these ships, and you got people running around everywhere, and there's nothing like that. I think you might see like one little ship zipping across the, the skyline there. That's it okay, we can give you this matte painting or we could do something with a lot of people running around. You can't have both. <laughs> John Travolta's back getting drunk now because he's upset that he's got to stay on Earth. They refer to their booze as being in pans. Give me a pan of Kerbango. But it's not a pan. It's like a glass cylinder. I think that's something that kind of got lost in translation from the book that maybe they should have changed the name <laughs> to fit the container. So now we got Barry Pepper in prison. The prison's strange. The aliens feed them with this goo that comes out of a hose, which is actually a mix of peas, potatoes, and spring greens. 
Is that what it's supposed to that's be? That's what it's supposed to be. Okay. It, that's what it was actually made with. Gotcha. They have them all penned up in a zoo. And so as, as they go to feed them, they just kind of pour this crap into a big trough. We get Barry Pepper in with all these other guys. He's the only one that somehow has figured out how to shave. Everybody else has beards, some kind of facial hair. He's young. He hasn't grown facial hair yet. <laughs> Pretty sure he was in his 20s. <laughs> yeah, how he's able to do this throughout the whole movie and nobody else does is beyond me. Something else that's interesting about the prison. They've got the men and the women in the same pens together. How is it that these cavemen aren't raping the shit out of these women? I hadn't thought about that. Because that's what would happen in a prison today. Let alone the, these now devolved humans yes. that are back to primate standards. That would be the first thing they would think of. Especially back to your previous point from earlier in the movie that uh, finding a, a good woman is difficult. Well, here's a whole slew of them. You got a whole cell full of them, man. Go beat one over the head and, and drag her back to my cave. So that's a weird rule that they don't follow, but Barry Pepper does follow the first rule of your first day in prison. Kick someone's ass the first day or become someone's bitch. <laughs> he decides to kick somebody's ass. So he's got this guy who's trying to tell him, this food is ours, we eat first. And he's like, nuh-uh, make me. And then they get into a fight and he beats his ass shoves his head in the goo, and then offers him something to eat. I think he's got enough already. <laughs> he's got this shit all over his face. It's like, no, thanks, I'm good. Well, and this is one of the points from, for lack of a better way to put it, character development perspective, and I use that very loosely, where it starts to establish that his character is different. He sees things a little bit differently, and he's like, hey, wait a minute, no, 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 this is not every man for himself. We're all on the same team here. We shouldn't be beating each other up. That we got to stand together against these guys, or, or or else this is the future we have for us. He's got a destiny to fulfill. That's right. This is the first time that they start to beat you over the head with that. So now we've seen Forrest Whitaker throughout this thing. He's John Travolta's whipping boy. He was trying to hide that they had uncovered a big gold vein in the mountains until John Travolta had left the planet. Now what the movie doesn't explain, even with the wall of text, is why gold is as important to the aliens as it is to humans. For some reason, these guys are obsessed with getting gold. Don't know because the movie doesn't tell us. The Cyclos want two things. They want gold and they want leverage. John Travolta's big He's on leverage. He's all about the leverage throughout this entire movie. Leverage. 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 So he comes up with the idea because this gold is in an area that's got radiation in it. They can't go up there and mine the gold, so he's going to get the man animals to go mine the gold. So he goes to the boss with this idea, and the boss shoots him down and says, nope, not going to do it. So then we cut to a scene where the humans are outside processing ore or something like that. They're carrying these things to get rocks dumped in them. And an alien ship flying along just randomly crashes into a smokestack and knocks it down on top of them. The ship doesn't crash or explode. It just kind of hits this smokestack and fucks off. Does this sort of thing happen a lot? <laughs> just seems very random that all of a sudden, oops, my bad. Sorry, guys. I'm surprised they have any smokestacks left at that rate after a thousand years of these idiots flying around. How are you going to have a jailbreak if, if you don't have a diversion? And that's what they do because Barry Pepper decides he's going to escape. I guess there was no other way the screenwriters could have come up with a, a diversion. That's fine. It works. So they catch him. They decide to kill him. They take him to an area where he can't breathe. They take his mask off. They decide they're going to keep time on how long it takes him to suffocate. So he runs away while he's holding his breath, which is hard enough to do. So he's struggling for breath and suffocating as he runs past several big fires in a mining area. 
I know you weren't all asking for a science lesson, but fuck's sake, you can't have a fire without oxygen. There's no reason this guy should be struggling to breathe if you have all these huge fires. Maybe it's not a lack of oxygen that's causing the problem with humans being able to breathe that they need the breathing devices. Maybe it's because there are other gases in the atmosphere that are just so poisonous that they need to be filtered out. And so the fire can burn because there's oxygen and not affected by these other poisonous gases that are part of the atmosphere there. That would have been nice if the movie told us that. <laughs> but I think they just weren't paying attention. <laughs> nah, fuck it. It looks good. Leave it in. I'm giving it too much credit at this point. You could be. <laughs> so while that's happening, John Travolta tricks uh, Forrest Whitaker into basically saying what their plan is, and then he records it while he's saying it, so he has leverage. 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 The movie can't decide if these guys are supposed to be serious villains or comic buffoons. Because they're making Forrest Whitaker look like an idiot. They use the word patsy. What is this, a 1930s gangster movie? <laughs> it's the year 3000 and these aliens are using the word patsy. Fantastic. And then for some reason, John Travolta looks up and just happens to randomly go to a video monitor to see Barry Pepper running. There was no alarm, no light flashing saying, hey, there's something on this monitor you should see. No reason. He just goes over and flips on this monitor. And there's Barry Pepper running away. So why did he choose that moment to look at the monitor? Don't know, because the movie doesn't tell us. So he finally gets trapped by his pursuers, who are then shot by John Travolta. He discusses getting... Leverage. 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 Over Barry Pepper with food, but these guys have no idea what humans like to eat. <laughs> it's been a thousand years, and they don't know what their prisoners like to eat. It's not like they caught those guys in the mall that were eating a rabbit. But he has an ingenious plan. Turn them loose in the wilderness, and they will instinctively go hunt out their choice of anything they want to eat. They're going to ultimately go and find their favorite food. They're going to hunt and seek out their most favorite delicacy. Then we'll know. They can pick anything. Obviously, the first thing they're going to pick is going to be their most favorite thing that they want. Because that's how food works. You just naturally can get anything you want. I can go walk out of this house right now and get a filet mignon. You don't want to know how, but there are ways, dude. So yeah, they let them loose. They run off into the mountains, and after three days, they're starving. So they find some rats and kill them and eat them. So John Travolta deduces that that is their favorite food, raw rat. Now, while they're out here running around in the mountains, this is another point where they go out of their way to beat us over the head with how special Greener is in terms of him noticing things that are completely lost on anybody else. No one else hears this whirring of these cameras that now have been embedded in their clothes. He hears it and he realizes, oh, we're being watched. And he starts to take out one by one all these cameras that he starts to realize are watching them. And the cameras cut off when they are ripped out of the shirt. Are they powered by cloth? <laughs> it's like as soon as he yanks it out, that's it. He lost the signal. <laughs> so we get one of our candidates for line of the movie. John Travolta gets pissed off, and then he smacks his head on the ceiling, and then yells, Crap, lousy ceiling! I thought I told you to get some man animals in here and fix it! Dude walked right into it. <laughs> he didn't walk from around the corner and happen to bump into it. He was facing it and walked into it. Then Forrest Whitaker just looks at him like, whatever, motherfucker. And then we 
do a wipe. End scene. <laughs> Mwah. Jesus. They go after Barry Pepper and the guys, and at this point, Barry Pepper decides that he'd rather throw himself off the cliff than go back, but he could have just been trying to get off the movie. <laughs> he chickens out as soon as the alien spaceship appears in front of him. I don't understand why, because essentially he knew that if he jumped off the cliff, he was going to die. So what's the difference if he jumps off the cliff with an alien spaceship there? Isn't the end result going to be the same? <laughs> Forrest Whitaker says that humans must be able to fly. I don't know why he thinks that. Because Barry Pepper was going to jump, maybe. Even though he didn't jump, he thinks that they could fly? I don't know, but John Travolta decides he's going to prove how dumb... Forrest Whitaker is by just chucking some nameless dude off of the cliff. <laughs> it's only one way to find out if he yeah. can fly. Let's 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 see it. Let's and test we, this. And we get the same bad green screen shot of this twice. Absolutely it, horrible <laughs> green screen effect but on it, this. It repeats where he's like, no, and it's like the exact same shot both times. If I if I follow the difference between the two correctly, this scene was in the theatrical cut, yes, but removed from the DVD. Yes. So now that they've put together this enhanced version for the Blu-ray and for streaming, where they've cleaned up a lot of the graphics, restored it for high definition, why this scene was A, put back in in the first place, but B, left to be the horrible visual effect that it is, they couldn't improve it, make it look better. Because it's not very expensive to color correct a movie, but redoing special effects is expensive. And this was one of those things where Mill Creek Entertainment or something put out the DVD and not Warner Brothers, which okay. is the guys who did the theatrical distribution and the, the uh, original DVD and all that. It's one of those things where Warner Brothers just kind of licensed it out to somebody and they were like, yeah, we'll spend a couple bucks to kind of correct it, but we're not doing the George Lucas thing. We're not going to reshoot stuff. Aha. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's Battlefield Earth. <laughs> Well, clearly somebody thought it had enough legs that it deserved color correction and and whatever treatment it got for transition to high def anyway. Probably because if it's not high def, you can't have it on Netflix. Oh. I would imagine they were probably trying to think of, we can probably sell this thing off to somebody, get a couple bucks out of it, but we got to put it in HD. It's 2021. Ah, uh, okay. That's what I would speculate. So the humans get taken back and they're put to work fixing the ceiling. Barry Pepper instantly starts touching the machines. <laughs> All right, there you go. Get to work. And he's just like, ooh, what's this? John Travolta's standing right there, grabs him and throws him around, and he decides, all right, we're going to take this one, and they plug him up to a learning machine. So it's like the Matrix, only shittier. <laughs> now, this is another part of the movie that I will give a point for, because this is like the only time you see anything that actually looks alien in the movie, because he plops him down in this chair and then takes some sort of weird organic-looking thing and hooks it into this machine to get it to start working. And it's like, oh, that's weird. That's kind of interesting. No mention of it, explanation of what it does, and instead we get a cheap effect where the machine just starts blasting stuff directly into his eyes. But for a second there, it's like, oh, this is kind of a cool alien organic-looking thing. That's kind of neat. But that's a very brief moment. They decide they're going to teach him the alien language. And apparently this is the first time in a thousand years that this has been done because these idiot aliens could see no benefit in being able to communicate with humans. Again, not to give the movie more credit than it's due, they've gone out of their way to express, at least from Travolta's view, how the man-animals, as they call them, are stupid. They don't, mm -hmm. oh, he doesn't have the, the capacity to be able to make this gun work. He doesn't know how to use this technology. These guys are stupid. They don't have the capacity to learn. And now for the first time they say, oh, well, this guy 
There's something special about him. I'm seeing potential here. But in a thousand years, <laughs> there's been not one other guy from 2000 to 3000 that said, hey, let's try and teach somebody. On, we've got these learning machines. Let's teach them how to do this. Mankind needed a hero. Jesus. <laughs> Travolta comes back into the room. He starts asking if he can understand what he says, and he can kind of start to, to piece the words together and whatnot. I know kung fu. For the last time, no, you don't. And then he puts him back in the chair and just fucks off again. They leave the humans unsupervised, which seems like a terrible idea because his buddy instantly goes into the room leaving his work before the guys are barely out the door and goes to check on him. And it's like, don't you want to keep an eye on these guys here with all the stuff they're doing? They're working with tools. They could be smashing your equipment. They could be screwing around. If they're as dumb as you think they are, shouldn't you have somebody in there watching them to make sure they don't fuck around? I guess not. The guy asks him if he's okay, and he's like, this machine is teaching me about these aliens and their home planet. I gotta stay here, and I gotta learn more about them. I thought he was just being taught the language. Why would they teach him all this other stuff about their race and about everything else? Because the next scene, we cut back to him in the prison, and now he's drawing equations on the floor like he's fucking Matt Damon or something. <laughs> They've given him the gift of intelligence. Why? You wanted him to be able to speak your language. And now he's sitting there talking about Euclidean geometry and drawn equations. And hey, John Travolta, do you like apples? Well, this movie sucks. <laughs> How do you like them apples? So they taught him Euclidean geometry and molecular biology for some reason. With this knowledge, the next time they're in there, he's sitting there reading all this stuff in their language on a pad. And they go to break into this vault in possibly the dumbest scene in the movie. Putting so, it on a pedestal. So he's, <laughs> they're messing around with these machines. And even though the security cameras in this place, nobody appears to be watching them. So the thing they're reading is use this six digit security number, but don't <laughs> use your personal identification number. So the first thing they do is say, oh, well, here's somebody's personal identification number. Let's put it in. That didn't work. I guess the aliens are cleverer than that. Clever? They were so clever they didn't do what the thing told them not to do? How is that fucking clever? That's stupid. And then they had the great idea to... Do it backwards! And it works! Because the aliens aren't that clever after all. If the fucking cheers! These guys are so stupid they deserve to lose the fucking planet. They are too stupid to have had control for a thousand years. If even these monkey men can figure out how to do this shit. <laughs> this is President Scrooge level fucking codes that they're using here. That's the stupidest combination I ever heard in my life! That's the kind of thing an idiot would have on his luggage! Meanwhile, back at the ranch... For, for no particular reason, we're about like 53 minutes into the movie at this point, mm -hmm. and we're seeing all this action take place. Let's take a break! And suddenly, dude's horse shows up back at home. Days, weeks have gone by. We have zero context for how much time has passed. He's not strolling back. This motherfucker is running like his tail is on fire and his ass is catching. He is running back. He's still got his saddle and everything, so it's not like some other caveman found him and stripped him like he's somebody's car in Detroit. How far away did he go? Because it seemed to take no time at all before they get caught by the aliens. And now Seabiscuit comes back. The only context we've had is it was at least three days since they got released in the first place, but we have no concept of time as to how long it's been before and since that. So this horse could not have been running like that for three days straight to get back, and it just doesn't make any sense. But you know what we get here at this point in the movie, though? 
another shot of the guy blowing the horn. And this is where we get the entrance of our strong female character (laughs) who tells off the Nazi colonel that she's going after, they finally mention his name is Johnny, and she don't need no man's permission to do it. That's right. Because she's a strong, independent woman. And she breaks the rope that's holding the door closed and she goes riding off after him. So, of course, the next time we see her, she's been captured. For fuck's sake. So back in the alien world, the humans that are broken into the lockers, they've got all these weapons. They get the drop on John Travolta, and they're going to shoot him, but it turns out the weapons weren't loaded. They got all those weapons, and nobody thought to check if they were loaded. You'd think at least the smart one would have looked at these somehow, the one that could figure out the switch in the first place from stun to kill, but he doesn't. Also, John Travolta doesn't seem very concerned about the fact that they broke into the security vault. Doesn't seem to bother him at all. If that's the case, why keep it locked? Well, from the other cyclos. The, the, the humans are obviously dumb. They don't know how to get in there. He wouldn't expect that from the, these d- dumb man creatures. I guess, but that's where we've seen that he keeps his special collection of recordings that he's got of everybody he's trying to get leverage over on. So you'd think he would be concerned that they would screw around and somehow break it because they're so stupid, but that doesn't happen either. Or use it against him. Yeah. <laughs> John Travolta takes Barry Pepper to the Denver Library, and he tells them that Earth only managed a nine-minute fight before the entire planet was conquered. Keep that in mind for later. So he tells them that you can read anything in this library you want, because nothing in here will help you. But that was before. <laughs> Barry Pepper finds the Declaration of Independence that Nicolas Cage once stole. I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. And we the people know better. The building's wrecked, and all these books have been in the open air for a thousand years. But they have they're, they're still intact, and they don't turn to dust the instant you touch them. Up next, we've got the dumbest scene in the movie. <laughs> so the humans are taken to this field full of cows. Where John Travolta demonstrates his shooting prowess by shooting the cows. Big, slow, stupid animals. And he talks about how skilled a marksman he is. Well, then he shows it off, too. Shooting behind his back, fancy and everything. Yeah. It would have been great. You know, show up a close-up of the cow like it's the horse from Animal House when he gets shot. (laughs) He shoots one and its leg flies off sideways in this terrible CG shot, which has got to be one of the funniest fucking things in the movie. And there's no blood or anything. You never see a drop of blood in this movie. So then while he's shooting these cows, he pisses off a bunch of savages who come out of the woods and attack John Travolta. So once again, the humans have the drop on him, but unlike 10 minutes ago when they tried to shoot him, this time Barry Peppers decides to let him live because Barry Pepper has read the Declaration of Independence (laughs) and he knows now that it's not enough for them to kill this dude and run away. Now they've got to fight and take back their planet. That's right. See, because if they just kill this one guy and escape, They'll still be enslaved. They'll just come back, take them, and and enslave them some more. He gives them a half-assed William Wallace speech. What will you do without freedom? We will run! And we will live! What kind of life is it to run? Always living in fear of being hunted? The great villages were built by our people, by millions of men and women just like us, willing to fight to the death for one thing above all else, their freedom. Let it be said that we took this one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Yeah! Yeah! We fight! Yeah! 
and everybody gets all worked up and they're cheering and shaking their spears and all that. And John Travolta doesn't seem the least bit concerned that everybody's getting all so worked up. Okay, what were you guys talking about? <laughs> and he gives him the gun back and then gets choked out for his troubles. <laughs> Brilliant. So then in the next scene, John Travolta shows him that, uh, hey, we caught your woman. And they fit her with an explosive collar like it's the fucking Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he's like, here, let me give you a demonstration of how this collar works. And he puts it on some random dude. And then he pulls a water world. I'm not going to kill him because we're <laughs> friends now. And then he gives the control to Forrest Whitaker and Forrest Whitaker kills him instead. I can't get away from water world. <laughs> I, I can't do it. It's exactly the same scene. So they blow this guy's head up. Happens off screen. There's no blood, no flying chunks, no nothing. The movie's rated PG-13. So despite the astounding lack of blood... It's still a PG-13. It's just ridiculous because there's no blood after some guy's head explodes. <laughs> He's only standing about three feet away from somebody else. They share an evil laugh, and then we go on to the next scene where Barry Pepper's banging his head against the bars because he's depressed that he got that guy killed, but the others convince him that fighting is the right thing to do. Sometimes William Wallace needs his own perk-up speech. The troops need to give a little love back the other way. That's right. So he gives him a speech, and for some reason, he cuts off some of his hair and gives it to the dead guy's brother, I think it is. I had no idea what the hell that was about. For reasons. He cuts it off with that glass knife that the guy gave him in the mall before they got captured. Why does he still have the knife? They were hosing them down with fire hoses and processing them to the prison. Wouldn't they have taken anything that was a weapon off of them? How does he still have it? You're not supposed to notice those things. <laughs> ah, so up next might be the dumbest scene in the movie <laughs> where John Travolta introduces his soon-to-be secretary he basically calls her a dumb slut while she's sitting right, right next to him but he said it really quietly oh is that he, he, he turned and, and said it in confidence oh, oh, okay. at a whisper yeah, she didn't hear she's got a tongue like Gene Simmons <laughs> she uh, gives him like one of those recording discs that has information about the boss on the planet John Travolta's got these big furry hands with claws, and she's wearing gloves. So I think she didn't want to get her hands done up like John Travolta. She didn't want nine fingers. Yeah. You know who that was? <laughs> I didn't recognize her. That's Kelly Preston, Travolta's wife. Oh, was it really? Yep. No, I missed that. We get another candidate for the line of the movie, <laughs> where she says to him, I'm going to make you as happy as a baby cyclo on a straight diet of Curbango, which is their alcohol. A baby on a straight diet of alcohol would be dead. <laughs> <laughs> then her, her tongue kind of flicks out in a in a extremely sexual, over sexual kind of yeah. kind of motion that there's where your PG thirteen rating probably came from. That could be. <laughs> that could be. You know she died last year. Did she really? She did. I didn't hear that. They said it was cancer, but I'm thinking it was embarrassment. It just took twenty years to catch up. So then, with this information, John Travolta blackmails the boss and is able to go along with his plan to have the man-animals go mine the gold. It's in this scene where he's talking to the supply guy getting all this mining equipment that you can see the fucking size of John Travolta's feet. Jesus Christ! It's ridiculous. <laughs> so then, as they fly to the mining site, the computer announces that there's a radioactive area ahead. And immediately, it starts reacting with the air in the cockpit. You see, right, like, little right. sparks and stuff, and John Travolta's like, nope, we gotta land here. My question is, if the reaction is strong enough to cause these little bursts of fire in the cockpit, what's putting it out? If it's reacting with the air, what what's stopping it from just exploding? And what good does it do to have a sensor telling you the radioactive area is ahead if instantly it's enough to start setting your air on fire? 
These are things that we don't know because the movie doesn't tell us. Then John Travolta leaves them all unsupervised. He says he'll be watching because they've got spy planes, they've got drones overhead, which fly very low to the ground and are very loud. In the year 2000, I am very confident that we had satellites that could take pictures of people on Earth. <laughs> Enough even then to a point where you could see if a bunch of guys were working on mining something or not. And the people on Earth wouldn't be able to tell that there's a spy satellite taking pictures of them. How do these aliens not have technology even close to that? We've got planes that could be 30,000 feet in the air taking pictures. And you wouldn't be able to hear them. They'd just be a little tiny speck up in the sky. But no, these idiots have rockets that are so goddamn loud that the humans have time to prepare. Here they're coming! They go down and bullshit like they're working because that's part of the plan. There's a plan? Barry Pepper says, we're not going to mine for this gold. But why? Because my learning machine told me about this place called Fort Knox. Wait, 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 wait. This whole next little bit that gets lined up was kind of a, a big WTF moment for me. Did he get it from the learning machine? Or was this when he had his little traipse through the library? How the hell does he know about Fort Knox? I guess the answer is yes. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Somehow he knows about Fort Knox. And Fort where... Hood. Yeah. And Washington, D.C. All these details of things that he would have never had any context for knowing anything about. But now he's got enough information to formulate a plan. So they're going to go to Fort Knox to get the gold. Was this written by a child? <laughs> so the aliens have had control of Earth for a thousand years and haven't found Fort Knox. Even though gold is the most precious substance that they value, they wouldn't have sent people around just, we've got a thousand years to kill. Let's go through every building we can find and see if there's, yeah, let's just see if there's any gold in it. What the hell? They didn't do that. So first they go to Washington, D.C. for some reason. I don't know what building they're in, the Department of Maps or something. They find a map and are like, hey, survivors went into these irradiated areas because the aliens couldn't go there. And again, this comes up with the problem that Radiation would make humans sick, but how did the humans in these areas survive for a thousand years? Because it doesn't take a thousand years to get radiation poisoning. You get radiation poisoning, even low doses, you will get very sick, you will become sterile, you won't be able to have kids to pass anything along. No one in the village seems sick, and there were kids in the village. So, this isn't working. <laughs> so from there they go to Fort Knox, they have to cut open a door to get inside Fort Knox, but once they get inside the building, the vault door is just hanging open. But the gold's undisturbed. So this door isn't open. This door is. And all the valuable stuff inside is just perfectly intact. Seriously? As we talk through this, I think timeline and the passage of time is very important to note. Yeah. As the rest of the movie plays out. Because initially when they're dropped off, he's given two weeks to mine this gold and I'll be back. And then they go to Fort Knox to get this gold. At least John Travolta asks the question... Why is it in bars? So they brought a whole bunch of mining equipment with them to get this stuff. Didn't say anything about bringing smelting equipment. <laughs> he checks it with some kind of, it, it's got to be like some kind of Geiger counter, because I imagine it's in an irradiated zone. There should be a certain amount of radiation, you would think, on the bars themselves, and it gives some kind of a reading. Apparently it's not enough to blow them up. Well, I think at this point he's checking to see if it's really gold, is, is kind of how I interpret it. Okay, is, is that this, could be. Is the this way the it was real thing, or is he trying to pull a fast one? Yeah, somewhere? the way it was clicking, it sounded like a Geiger counter. That made me think he was checking for radiation. But again, we don't know because the movie doesn't tell us. <laughs> but I would think the ore from the deposit would be radioactive. Wouldn't he want to take a look at the smelting operation? 
Because, oh, gee, every ounce of gold you've pulled up so far just happens to conveniently be in bars already. You guys aren't making any more bars right now? Can I see the place where you were making the bars? Nah, don't worry about it. But since you had all this extra time to smelt this gold down, well, now I want the rest of it double time. Seven days. You got seven days. Give me the rest of this gold. Yeah. So and, they got to work fast. And here's the important factor now. Seven days is now our magical timeline as the following events begin to unfold. Yes. <laughs> seven days. Keep that in mind. One week. They come up with a plan. They're going to blow up the dome that's covering Denver. And then one guy says, they'll be in the dome. They won't have their masks on. They won't be able to breathe. If we blow up the dome, they'll all die. Um, the masks are portable. You see people walking around outside with them all the time. They can just carry a mask in their pocket and put it on. I mean, if you're living in a place that's under a big glass dome and the air outside will kill you, wouldn't you kind of carry your mask around with you so you could breathe at all times? That'll make no sense. And for some reason at this part, Carlo, that's uh, Kim Coates, our buddy from Waterworld, he starts saying piece of cake a lot. Piece of cake. 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 Mm -hmm. unprompted by anything. I don't know where it comes from. Have these guys even ever seen cake? They've been living like cavemen. Right. Like, they wouldn't even know what that means. So now at this point, they go to Fort Hood, which is an army base in Texas. And it might be called something else by the time this episode gets put up. Who knows? It's one of those that's on the list to be renamed because it's named after a Confederate soldier. Uh -huh. Oh, God forbid. They're going to change it to something else, and then I'll have to redo the whole goddamn episode. They go to Fort Hood, where they find perfectly stored military gear. We're talking planes, weapons, vehicles, all in pristine condition. After a thousand years. What's even better? The electricity's on. <laughs> the electric grid is still on after a thousand years. Without any kind of maintenance. Nah, it's fine. I'm sure there wouldn't be a tree somewhere that fell in the last thousand years that would cut through some power lines or anything else that happened when, you know, the earth was kind of destroyed. Oh, it's a government facility. It's on a different circuit. Sure, yeah, it's all underground, right? <laughs> None of that stuff would have deteriorated in a thousand years. So the planes they find are Harriers. You know anything about Harriers? Very, very little. Okay, screenwriters don't either. Harriers are exclusively used by the United States Marine Corps, and Fort Hood is a U.S. Army base. The Marines and the Navy are in the same department, so the Harriers should be at a naval base somewhere. That would make sense. But no, they're in the, the Army base, which also has a training simulator. That's the important thing. For Marine jets on an Army base, which I guess at this point isn't even the most ridiculous thing that's going on. <laughs> but what happens next is, this is my vote for the most ridiculous thing in the movie. This is your dumbest scene in the movie? <laughs> this is my dumbest scene in the movie right here. So they've got seven days to make the attack and reclaim their planet. They're going to train cavemen <laughs> to fly jets. In, in seven, seven days. days. <laughs> How long were we in Afghanistan? 20 years? Have you seen the videos <laughs> when they're trying to train the Afghan army? Get them to do jumping jacks? Mm -hmm. And these the fucking Afghanis can't even do jumping jacks? <laughs> they're fucking it all up. None of them are in rhythm or anything like that. That's what it looks like when you try to teach cavemen how to do jumping jacks. I would love to see what happened if you try to teach them how to fly a Harrier in seven days. They fly in perfect formation is what happens. Yeah. <laughs> they would probably fly just as well as the dudes in Afghanistan trying to fly that Black Hawk helicopter. They couldn't even get it off the ground. Oh, Jesus. Seven days. Seven Humanity days. that has devolved to primate levels, poking each other with spears and grunting. It learned to fly Harriers, yes. In seven days. Barry Pepper has figured out how to remove a 
nuclear device from a drone. Where would he have learned to do this? Was that part of the machine training that he was given, where he was just supposed to be learning their language? Now all of a sudden he's diffusing nuclear warheads like Roger Moore in a James it's, Bond movie? It's Independence Day. Independence Day? In, oh, in, in, Appendix, Appendix A, A yes. He, in the, he had to find Appendix A, the, and that explained it all. On the DVD version, Appendix A. Yeah. <laughs> Which just happened to be on the overhead projector that was laying around. Good thing it wasn't, you know, a completely different thing. It just happened to be the one piece of information they were looking for in an amazing coincidence. Also, um, you can't remove a warhead from a nuclear bomb and make it cause a nuclear explosion. It needs fissionable material. That's why in the James Bond movie, when Roger Moore pulls out a, a detonator from a nuclear warhead and uses it to blow up a door, it just blows up a door and doesn't nuke the entire inside of the ship. That sort of thing is what they call a safeguard to keep someone from doing the same thing as pulling a nuclear warhead out and then blowing it up somewhere and causing a nuclear explosion. Also, keep in mind, kids, jet fuel in storage is only good for about four years. Even if all these machines are in perfect working order after a thousand years, even if you knew how to fuel them and fly them, the jet fuel wouldn't be any good. A ten-year-old wrote this script. I'm convinced. Because the screenwriters, like, when I turn it in, they gave it off to someone who did some rewrites on it. And I don't know who rewrote stuff, but it's not the same thing as the one I turned into them. <laughs> they probably had a Scientology screenwriting contest. They're like, hey, kids, who wants to write Battlefield Earth? Send your submissions, too. And then one retarded 10-year-old said, oh, I got this. Well, cavemen, cavemen are going to fly fighter jets and kill the aliens. <laughs> So what they want to do is they're going to take this atomic bomb they have and teleport it to the alien's homeworld, and someone's got to go there with the bomb and blow it up. It'll blow up the atmosphere and blow up the planet. And John Travolta's plan is to take the gold, and he's going to ship it back home in coffins. How's he going to go back there to reclaim it? We don't know because the movie doesn't tell us. Barry Pepper sneaks back to prison and convinces Forrest Whitaker to trade the human's freedom for the recordings that John Travolta made that he somehow has. Leverage. 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 And he gets the key and gets the collar off the woman's neck. And they let all the guys out. This is the scene, probably the dumbest scene in the movie. <laughs> Where Forrest Whitaker shows John Travolta that he's got these recordings and he tries to blackmail him. So John Travolta plays 20 questions with them for a while as to who's got the copy before he reveals that he knows it's the bartender and he's already got his head in a box. He shoots off Forrest Whitaker's hand, blows it smooth off, and Forrest Whitaker just kind of looks at it like, that's interesting. I guess the aliens don't feel pain. We've established it. The aliens don't feel any pain at all. That's kind of nice. I guess that's a good feature to have. <laughs> Apparently this technology on this on this weapon, it's not like creating open wounds. It like somehow is like a lightsaber and that it'll completely kind of cauterize or, or it disintegrates the portion of the body that it captures, but closes off all the wounds so there's no yeah. open blood or, or anything like that. It just kind of makes the body part that it hits disappear. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's alien technology. We don't understand. Yeah, that's it. And this is one of my favorite cuts coming up here. It cuts to a scene where the alien guards come walking in the jail and it's just empty. And I can imagine those two guys just looking at each other like, Ah, oh, shit. <laughs> we're going to get fired for this. Not even I supposed just, to be here today. Yeah. So where were the guards when the humans were being let out? Did they just, like, fucking wander off? Because I'm sure they were there when Forrest Whitaker was there. I, just because he's getting something for it doesn't mean the rest of these guys are going to get the same thing. Did he just convince them all to leave? We don't know because the movie doesn't tell us. 
the humans are using walkie-talkies to coordinate their uprising. So the batteries are still good after a thousand years. <laughs> Why not? Why should we fucking go for logic now? So Barry Pepper takes out a couple of aliens guarding the teleporter. They grunt in pain when they're shot or hit with pipes. So now I'm confused again. Do the aliens feel, feel pain, pain or, or not? <laughs> I don't know. And this is great. One of the guys tell Barry, the alarm's been triggered by the shooting. Five guards are coming, heavily armed and moving fast. One, you can tell his lips don't match the words, which is brilliant ADR, because that's what you want to do when you have an ADR shot of somebody. You want to make sure you get their lips moving so they can tell that you're saying something completely different from what was recorded the day on the set. But then we instantly cut to a shot of five aliens that are walking at what cannot even be described as a brisk pace. The biggest reason for this is because the actors are on stilts. It's hard to run while you're on stilts. And I think that's why during the uprising scenes, whenever you see them, none of them are running. My question is this. The stilts are used to demonstrate their height. They're so much taller than humans. So we've got to have them on stilts because we don't know how to do CG and make it look like forced perspective. If you have a shot with no humans in it and nothing else to give it a sense of scale, why do the motherfuckers need to be on stilts? I'm with you. <laughs> Put them in costumes that don't need stilts and then have them run across the platform or whatever. Then at least you could give some kind of sense of urgency. These guys are very lacking in urgency. It was probably budgetary constraints because at that point they would have had to have a separate set of costumes that were fitted for the actors without all the prosthetics and, and the, the, giant uh, the extra boots. stuff. Yeah, We don't have the budget for an extra set of costumes. We just got to roll with it. But the end result is it's a comedy cut. Hey, there's these five guys heavily armed and moving fast and they're just crawling. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing that they do with the Dutch angles. Do we need the Dutch angles to show height proportion when humans and aliens are in the same shot together? Why do you need it in a scene where it's just John Travolta and Forrest Whitaker? They don't need to show height comparative to each other. Why can't those shots be level? Dramatic effect. No, because they fucking got a broken tripod and didn't bother to take it back to Los Angeles. And this is not brain surgery. This is like the shit they would teach you in film school. All right, so now we get into lots of slow motion. The aliens are trying to shoot Barry Pepper again. And slow motion in an action scene doesn't make it more exciting. Makes it more dramatic. When it's overdone. Well, <laughs> this particular part, it's like the shootout in The Matrix. Because there's the scene in the, like, the lobby of that building where Neo and fucking Carrie and Moss, Moss are, huh? are like flipping around and doing all this crazy Matrix shit and shooting up all the pillars where the guys are trying to, to kill them. And this is the same thing. Like There's these pillars that are getting shot up while he's running in between them. I'm like, great, somebody saw The Matrix. <laughs> Again, homage or ripoff? Ripoff. This fight's been going on for a while and the alarm's going off. At this point, we cut to a bunch of aliens that are sitting around on their asses playing cards or something while a full riot slash uprising is happening. The alarm was sounded. Why are these guys still sitting around fucking playing cards? For some reason, during this uprising, the humans are like kind of lurching along like it's conquest of the planet of the apes or something where they're, they're, they're walking all hunched over and they're smashing a lot of windows. Nobody's broken these glass windows for a thousand years, and then you fuckers want to come along and smash a bunch of windows in an area that you're presumably trying to recapture for yourselves. Do any of you know how to make glass? I thought this was where they were trying to break the glass in the dome to let the let the air in. Or no, whatever. these are these are just glass. This is buildings on the ground. The oh. dome is like the way up in the sky. Oh, see, I thought this was like the wall of the dome where they were just cracking the. No, the no, barrier those, to let those, the atmosphere in. Those are just buildings. Well, then that was dumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's kind of dumb. It must be a natural mob thing to just go break glass. 
So here we get a scene where there's the guy who's going to blow up the dome is on top of the dome, setting the explosives. He shoots down an alien ship with a heat-seeking rocket shot from a bazooka. <laughs> this is something that does not exist outside of a video game. What? Bazookas are what they call dumbfire weapons. For it to be a homing weapon, it needs to have a brain inside where it can be laser-guided or something else. It, they, does, it doesn't come out have... of the bazooka. They can't do that? No, they don't have heat-seeking bazooka rockets. <laughs> They're point-and-shoot. <laughs> And now, even more proof that a kid wrote this movie. Uh oh. Now we get the scenes with cavemen flying Harriers. <laughs> My favorite part of the movie. Yeah. Is. And these motherfuckers aren't even wearing flight suits or anything. They're still dressed up as cavemen. They still got their faces <laughs> painted. Oh, that's right. I don't know why the Marines wear helmets when they're flying these things. I don't know why they have oxygen masks while they fly these things. Obviously, they don't need them. That's just a waste of taxpayer money. I'm going to write my congressman. This is bullshit. <laughs> So, the jets, the fuel, and the weapons all work perfectly after a thousand years. The cavemen not only have learned to fly these jets, they fly them like fucking X-Wing fighters. But let's not forget, we had to get them from Fort Hood, Texas, back to Denver in the first place. Yes. <laughs> you gotta get them from Texas to Denver. I don't imagine they learned how to fly a tanker. I don't even know if you can refuel a Harrier in mid-flight. I... In the book, they don't fly Harriers. They take a bunch of the aliens' own ships. That would have made more sense. And learn how to use those, and they fly those and attack using the aliens' own weapons against them. Even L. Ron Hubbard didn't think motherfuckers were dumb enough to believe that you could fly a Harrier jet after a thousand years in a week that hasn't been maintained. And keep in mind, these other cavemen were never hooked into the alien learning machine. These are the, the guys who came out when they were shooting cows. And I think they were never captured. A, a, a missed opportunity, down to your point, if the book was the other way, that would have actually made sense. If they've got this fancy machine that you just sit somebody in front of it and it just shoves information into your brain so that you learn at an accelerated pace, that would have been a good way to introduce this idea that all of these guys can now learn how to use this alien technology to go use it against them. But in this particular case, not only not using alien technology, but yes, they have they, they got a flight simulator for a week. And not only is one of them really good, they're all really they're good. They're all ace every, pilots flying every caveman in perfect is formation. Ace pilot. So Barry Pepper gets the teleporter started to send the bomb to the alien's planet, and he tells Carlo to blow the dome when he's caught by John Travolta and the teleportation sequence is stopped. And other aliens have landed on the roof of the dome and begin dismantling the bombs, but they all seem to go off just fine anyway. But the dome only cracks. And it's at this point where John Travolta gives the order to exterminate all man and animals at will and happy hunting. So then we cut immediately to a shot of aliens still sitting on their asses <laughs> playing cards <laughs> and standing around. They don't get paid enough for this job. They're trying to destroy the dome, the thing that contains the air you can breathe. And the aliens can't be fucking bothered to do anything about it. You know what? Fuck them. They deserve to die. Dumb motherfuckers. Jesus Christ. You don't even give a shit. The alien ship has landed on the dome and it cuts to the door swinging open and aliens coming out. After the aliens are shown sitting on their asses playing cards, it cuts to a shot of a door opening up and aliens coming out. It's the exact same <laughs> shot. So what Carlo does is he decides he's going to crash his ship into the dome and he blows himself up, which does the trick and the dome gets crashed. But not before he gets one last piece of cake in. <laughs> Boo-hoo. So we get a lot of slow motion debris falling and bad CGI building collapses. 
Travolta calls in a stage three emergency, tells the home planet to send in the gas drones, and he reactivates the teleporter. Cut to the home planet. Instantly, thousands of alien uh -huh. soldiers just standing on the platform ready to go. ready to go. It took no time to mobilize them whatsoever. Compare that to the aliens on Earth that we saw two shots of them sitting on their asses playing <laughs> cards. Meanwhile, the ones on the home planet are gung-ho, man. They said something about a stage three emergency. My ass is on that pad already. Well, see, it's because the aliens coming to Earth get their pay cut in half. They're like, yeah, the we ain't getting paid enough job. for this shit, man. Barry Pepper and John Travolta get in a fight. Barry sticks the collar thing on John Travolta's arm. John Travolta is still asking about his gold. They've blown up the dome. Denver is in complete chaos. Everything's falling apart, and this dumb motherfucker is still asking about his gold. All right, so Barry Pepper outsmarts him and tricks him into blowing his own arm off. He didn't notice that he had stuck the exploding device on his arm. And John Travolta reacts to this with mild annoyance. <laughs> he grips his arm and kind of grimaces. I mean, seriously, did they feel pain or not? His arm got blown off. I watched a movie called RoboCop where a guy got his arm shot off. It uh -huh. looked like it really fucking hurt. <laughs> but I guess he's not an alien. Tis but a scratch. Yeah. The human beams over with the bomb and explodes it, causes a chain reaction that not only destroys the atmosphere, but explodes the entire planet. So the aliens had no safeguard against any radiation being teleported back ever, despite them knowing that they've got people on a planet that has areas that have radioactivity on it. They're too stupid to have ever lived this long. They don't have a cyclo word for contamination. <laughs> I guess not. I guess they didn't think to have like a dome or something over teleporter from Earth, just in case there's something that's got a few rads on it. So the dome collapse killed all the aliens because they couldn't breathe, despite if you watch the battle, you can see several shots of them where they've got their masks on. The only ones we see afterwards are John Travolta and Forrest Whitaker. So now Barry Pepper and his girl hug it out, and I guess we're supposed to care, but I don't, because I'm just done at this point. So they put John Travolta in a cage in Fort Knox, because apparently there weren't enough cages at the fucking zoo in Denver. No, 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 no. This was poetic justice. Because you see, they stuck him there with all the gold that he oh, wanted no. so damn badly. Here you are. Here's all your gold. Enjoy it. Tormenting okay. him. Oh, well, that's God. brilliant. That changes my whole outlook on this movie. <laughs> so, Forrest Whitaker has joined forces with the humans. They've made him the head cyclo. But, but he's almost the only he's cyclo. The only cyclo. <laughs> Uh, so it's set up for a sequel, but we'll talk about that in the aftermath. Because this is just the first third of the book. The first half, yeah. First it's half. About the first half okay. of the book. And the movie ends with another wipe, this time moving from out, going in. It's the first wipe variation of the movie. <laughs> so they could do more than one wipe the whole time. Through the whole fucking movie, they've done the same goddamn center wipe. And they leave it until the end to show that they could do something different. Well, this one's, this one's poignant, you see, because the movie's over. Now it's closing instead of opening. It's artistic. Oh, it's a curtain. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Close the curtain on this fucking movie, man. Fuck John Travolta. Fuck Scientology. <laughs> fuck L. Ron Hubbard. Ugh, fuck this fucking movie. So that's it. That's fucking Battlefield Earth. Jesus H. Christ. <laughs> so let's take it to the aftermath. So the movie comes out May 12th of 2000, opened in second place behind Gladiator, which was in its second week. That's, that seems that's pretty respectable. Reviews were terrible. <laughs> 2.4 on IMDb, had a 3% on Rotten Tomatoes. Did you know that 3% of film critics are mentally retarded? 
I, I, I did not know that. Okay, there you go. The movie's <laughs> grosses dropped 66% in its second weekend, and it finished domestically with just under $21.5 million. That $21.5 million was over the course of how long? Not just those two weeks. No, 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 no. Like over, I don't know, five, six weeks, something like okay. that. Despite the large amount of German money producing the film, foreign grosses were only a little over eight and a quarter million dollars. And in Germany, straight to video. <laughs> they had an Entertainment Weekly cover spoofing the movie with all terrible quotes from reviewers. One of my favorite quotes from that, I think it was in the New York Times, they said, It may be a little early to say this, but Battlefield Earth may very well be the worst movie of the millennium. <laughs> Widely considered one of the worst movies of all time, the movie swept the 2000 Razzie Awards winning seven and added an eighth later for worst drama of their first 25 years and got a ninth in 2010 for worst movie of the decade. Despite all that, talk of a sequel was still happening. The second movie was supposed to come out in 2003 because they wanted to avoid competition with Star Wars Episode Two. The whole thing fell apart when Entertainment AG, remember them, the German company that helped finance the movie and right, had right, the right. European distribution rights, they filed a lawsuit against Franchise Pictures, alleging that the budget for the movie was not $75 million, as they were told, and paid 47% of, but was actually $44 million. Well, where did those adjusted numbers come from? I would think that'd be written down somewhere on a contract or something that somebody would have had a record of. That stuff all came out in Discovery, uh -huh. where they were like, hey, you guys are fleecing us. So we paid 47% of $75 million. We should have paid 47% of $44 million. Uh -huh. So they ended up putting up $35 million out of a $44 million budget. Now, $10 million of that went to Travolta. After was, his pay was, cut. After his pay cut. He was getting about $20 million per movie at the time. The director actually wrote a piece in the LA Times that mentioned that less than $14 million went to the live action production budget and less than $9 million went to the special effects. <laughs> I believe it. During production, John Travolta even invested $5 million of his own money back into the project to kind of keep things moving along. Entertainment AG won the lawsuit and was awarded $121.7 million in damages. From who? Franchise Pictures. Okay. I was going to say, who, who at this point after the, the movie's flops got all that money that they're going to pay? Well, Ili Samaha was declared by the court to be personally liable for <laughs> $77 million in damages. Wow. The judgment forced franchise pictures into bankruptcy in August of 2007. <laughs> the people involved, what happened to them? The director, Roger Christian, he never reached these heights again. He mostly has directed TV movies and direct-to-video features since then. Battlefield Earth's reception was catastrophic to his career. Barry Pepper, he had a few starring roles after Battlefield Earth. He was Roger Maris in 61, and he was uh, in We Were Soldiers with Mel Gibson in 2002. Mostly a supporting actor these days. He did have the lead role in the movie Crawl in 2019, which I think is about like giant alligators oh, okay. around and during a hurricane or something like that. Forrest Whitaker came out okay. He's been working consistently. He even won the Academy Award for Best Actor in 2006 for his portrayal of Idi Amin in The Last King of Scotland. John Travolta kept his star power for a few years afterwards. He was in Swordfish and Ladder 49 and The Punisher, Be Cool, for starting another downward slide which he has yet to recover from. Most of the last decade, his movies have been going straight to video, getting bad reviews. In 2018, he was in Gotti, which got a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. So, apparently, people think that's even worse than Battlefield Earth. Well, maybe just those 3% of film reviewers haven't seen it yet. So, Mr. Thornton Mellon, would you recommend Battlefield Earth? <laughs> no. Garbage. No, I would not. 
I qualify that. From a casual viewing perspective, you want to sit down and watch a nice sci-fi movie and enjoy a couple of hours of entertainment? Absolutely not, no. <laughs> if you intentionally want to sit down and enjoy a, a piece of bad film from a mystery science theater kind of perspective where you want to enjoy a couple of hours of laughing at the screen, have at it. If you come at it with the right perspective, then, then maybe. The thing about this movie, to sit and watch it, knowing all the things that you've heard about. So having it come out 20 years ago, that's 20 years of getting to hear how horrible this movie is. So the thing for me going into it was the idea that I now have like this really, really low expectation for what I'm about to witness. So I kind of went in with my guard up. It wasn't a surprise or, or, or a particular letdown in, in getting to watch it with all this. If anything, it wasn't bad. It was just boring. So it was kind of that I know it's going to be bad. And it's not that it wasn't, but it was just in watching it, I wasn't so overwhelmed with how shitty the movie was so much as it was just, I'm going to fall asleep trying to keep up with the story that doesn't exist. You ain't wrong. <laughs> For me, it's more like one of those movies that has its spoon in hand. And every time you think it's hit rock bottom, it starts <laughs> digging, digging again. Keep digging, motherfucker. We got more. I think this movie should be taught in film school. <laughs> Knowing what not to do is every bit as important sure. as knowing what to do. And the history of this film, the way it was made, the end result, everything is a blueprint for what you do not want to do when you're making a movie. <laughs> there is not one thing about this movie that they got fucking right. From the stupid camera angles and the terrible script, bad special effects, ridiculous hammy performances, it's an all-time low. Numbers-wise, this is the bottom of the barrel. This is a 1 out of 10. Garbage. I'm sure there's room for other other movies to be worse than this, honestly. I'd, I'd give it a two and a half. Garbage. I I'd save some room. Save I don't know about room. worse than this. There are probably some movies as bad as this, worse than this. That's a tall order. I think the thing with this movie that makes it bad is the fact that it took itself so seriously and attempts to come across in a way where it wants to be taken seriously, but can't be. No, because it does all this stupid, goofy shit that <laughs> is just out of the realm of possibility. It's the butt of the joke that doesn't oh, recognize it's a butt, understand right. <laughs> that it's the butt of the joke. It's not. It's being laughed at, not with. Yeah, yeah. John Travolta still defends it to this day. He says if he had to do it again, he would. That's a fucking threat, man. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Okay, faggot, what's next? Anyway, what are we doing next? I, I don't know if I want to do a movie this bad again. It's a good laugh, but sitting through this movie twice for the for the purposes of doing this was borderline torture. Tell me about it. <laughs> and I know you, I still got to go through it again to pull clips. You know, say you've you've sat through it a whole lot more than I have at this point. The <laughs> one that would be fun for me. I'm a I'm a big fan of the monkeys, and they made a film in '68 uh, called Head that I think you would have a heyday with. The fucking monkeys! You're kidding me. <laughs> It's one of those that, again, from a, a, if you look back at the numbers from a box office perspective, that at the height of the monkey's career being where they were with the number one show on TV, one Emmy, then a year later, they put out a movie that literally, I don't have numbers off the top of my head, but compared to what you've pulled out here for Battlefield Earth, doesn't even scratch the surface. 
Well, it's, it's hard to me imagine them spending $75 million. Not, not anywhere near the same kind of numbers, but yeah, I think when you, when you look at the number of theaters it was released at and, and gross per house that it was in, that the numbers are pretty abysmal. So you're saying they were gay porno movies that were making more money than the monkeys movie. Now, whether or not there's artistic integrity in the film from the, the folks who were involved, so that there's maybe some artistic merit in it overall as a film, but it's definitely friggin' weird. All right. Join us next time, and uh, instead of cool as ice, we'll be looking at the monkeys. <laughs> the fucking monkeys. So, say goodbye, Mr. Thornton Mellon. Goodbye, Mr. Thornton Mellon. And the show has reached a new low. And this is your boy G Money Clip signing off. Go have some popcorn, watch some movies, and we'll catch you next time. Adios, nachos. Garbage.